Hey everybody, I got something a little bit different for you today. Uh, I'm a little bit underwater in terms of how the review stuff is going, given the whole situation with COVID and all that kind of stuff, and haven't been able to get to the game group. Just started gaming uh, recently with my family a couple of weeks ago. And so, but I've got a chance to play through some of these games and there's been sort of a backlog here for a couple of weeks. So what I thought I would do, because there's really five games that I really want to talk about. They've come out over the summer and I thought I would do just a little vlog slash podcast, kind of the, my five games of summer. And so, spoiler alert, I enjoy all of these games, but I will kind of like work up until uh, my absolute favorite so far that I've played uh, this summer. Uh, so I will be putting this out on the podcast, but know that I'm. this is more of a vlog type of thing. If you're listening to this on the podcast, there'll be lots of pictures and images and all that kind of stuff uh, going on with all of it. So let's just jump right into it. I'm pretty excited to talk about all of these games, and I don't want to wait a week after week after week to do a full-blown review of it, but I'm going to give you some details on all of my thoughts about all of these games. So enough preamble, let's jump into the first one. The first one is, was a surprise, honestly. This is a Cosmic Encounter Duel. This comes from Fantasy Flight Games. So this is obviously a follow-up to the original Cosmic Encounter that came out in the 70s, but it's for two players, Cosmic Encounter Duel. You've got a whole mess of alien powers, and this is really the key crux of the game, and I'll get back to this in a minute, but each player is gonna choose one of many, many alien powers, and they vary in kind of difficulty in terms of how to use and how tricky they are to exploit. And then you'll be navigating through three basically event decks. There'll be discovery cards, event cards, refresh cards. Now my favorite by far is the event cards because these are little kind of mini games that the players will have to deal with. So if you watch my channel enough, you know one thing that I really seem to enjoy in games is this whole plug and play idea. So you've got the different alien powers, you've got the different events, you've got different aliens that are like NPC aliens that you can befriend, and all of those different kind of powers intersect in weird and funky ways, and they kind of like layer on top of each other, on top of this real basic card game core, which makes them some really funky, interesting uh, moments in the game that sometimes can fall a little bit flat, but other times it kind of really pays off. Now most of the time you'd be going through these discovery cards, which are going to deal out uh, planets from this stack of planet tiles and players will be competing to control these planets and the main way that players win is by having control with their little flying saucers on five planets. Now there are other win conditions like depleting your opponent of having any available flying saucers to you know use on the planets and that's one thing that players will have to be very careful of is not spending too much and not getting too many of them destroyed and going off into the warp in addition to those two endgame conditions, either controlling planets or losing all your ships, some of the aliens have their own little quirky endgame conditions where if you meet some kind of uh, threshold or something like that, then that's like an automatic win uh, for that alien. Now what players do is they'll have a hand of cards and then they'll be playing them uh, in addition to submitting the flying saucers to the planet to try to get uh, you know, a higher score. Uh, so you get kind of an advantage and a little bit of a, a score bonus for having the most ships, which can get destroyed, which I'll explain. But then you play some uh, like sort of like political cards or influence cards that have different numbers on them. And then other abilities and things will interact with all of that. And you try to take control of planets, basically, until you start throwing the alien powers in there. Maybe you don't want control. Maybe you don't want to win this battle. And all these other kind of funky things kind of uh, layer on top of that. So before you play cards, you have these little tactics things. You can see these little standee type of things. Uh, you can see the back of them here. But on the other side, you have this sort of double-sided top and bottom attack, defense, 
uh, refresh kind of thing. And players will secretly choose these and then flip them down. And that may or may not destroy or defend against destroying their flying saucers. And then the next step in the round is to maybe activate some of these sort of uh, friendly aliens here. And there's three different types. They all kind of do different things. But over the course of the game, you're going to be able to try to get control or steal control from your opponent of these aliens. And these give you additional special powers on top of your alien special power. And you'll activate these. And then you'll get into where you're actually playing these political cards. And each player has the same exact deck of cards. There's a blue and an orange deck. And then you can reinforce that with some of these special purple cards and get those through kind of almost like a little bit of a deck building kind of thing there. And you'll play those cards and that might augment any kind of score bonus that you get out of having the most ships and so on. So that's really the game. You kind of put some ships out there uh, with a dial that you select. So, you'll, so you can select from one to four ships and then you'll push them out there and then maybe some of them get wiped out with the tactics. And then there's some card play to kind of like refresh those tactics sometimes or the tactics themselves you can play to refresh other tactics. And then you'll have a little bit of card play if, if there's still ships there. If the ships are wiped out, then you won't even go to the card play. Um, and so that, that's the, just the game. You just keep do that over and over and over again until one of the win conditions is met. Uh, but like I said, there's other events that come into play. Those wacky NPC aliens will layer on top of that. And sometimes with your alien ability, you're not just trying to do that most straightforward thing. So let's take a look at three aliens here. And this first one's the underdog. This is like an easy alien. We're gonna look at the three different layers of aliens. And this one says, if your opponent revealed a plan, which is those numbered cards, that is higher than your revealed plan by 11 or more, you actually win the contest or duel instantly. So you can try to play really low and force them to play low, but that's also like a way to trick them to play lower and then you can go high. So it's a very interesting kind of mind game with the underdog. Now the next one is an uber reserve. You can see this one has kind of a yellow border. This is kind of a medium complexity. And this is before you reveal those plans, those numbered cards, you can reveal a run. So a sequential number of cards. And then you stick them under this card. So you take them out of your deck and these are all low numbered cards. So in a way you're kind of thinning your deck of the low numbered cards. But then if you have 12 or more cards under this card, boom, you just instantly win the game. So it's a very different kind of take on you know what you're trying to do in the game. And then finally, this sponge is a complex card. And I've not played with this one, but it's a different kind of win condition here. I just wanted to show it as an example. When the total number of cards in your opponent's hand, deck, and discard pile combine to fewer than six cards, you just win the game. Now look at the next part here. When plans are discarded, when the cards that you play are discarded, for each player who had ships destroyed, you must take either your opponent's plan or the top card of your opponent's deck and place that in your discard pile. So you can start to see that, like I said at the beginning, the alien powers are really the kicker to the game. So the first time you play the game, I don't remember what tells you to play the two basic aliens, uh, the swarm and then a different one, the prime, I think, yeah. And those are fine. And actually the prime is a little bit interesting because you do some interesting stuff with the prime numbers. And I like that as an intro, uh, type of alien to play because it gets you really to know the numbered cards that are in there which is actually important because you can you can start to play after you've played this a few times you can start to have a little bit of knowledge a little bit of an educated guess in terms of what the players are playing now i don't want to try to oversell this too much because i think there's a lot of caveats that come with cosmic encounter duel but i really have had a ton of fun uh, playing this one because it, it's really silly. It can end very quickly. You know, it gets wacky and it's very abrupt, but there is always uh, like an interesting decision to be made or it's almost like you're pretending it's interesting because like it might turn out that 
the all this thought that you put into it uh, didn't end up mattering just because of some of the randomness of it. But the game plays quick enough. It plays about 30 minutes every time I've played it. Obviously, it only plays two players. So you're always going to be right in that like 20 to 30 minute range, I think. It's not really going to go much longer than that because just kind of the chaos that it injects through some of the events and things uh, will just kind of force it to uh, be shorter. Like it, it doesn't get into a point where it gets munchkin-y where you know, you get somebody up high and then you bash them back down because there is kind of a catch-up mechanic, but it's very, very subtle with this like little token that it goes to kind of whoever is losing at the current time. But I definitely recommend it for folks that don't mind a little bit of chaos. And it's, it's just an interesting kind of thing to explore when you sit down and you get a new alien. You're like, okay, how is this going to work? You know, what does this event mean? You know, you, you can't... It, I always, when I play this game, the, the takeaway for me is you can't just dismiss it. Uh, whatever the decision point is at the current point in the game. You can't just say, oh, whatever, that's random. Because there is like a little bit of thought there that you don't want to be careless about it. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a little bit wacky enough that I think certainly it's going to put some people off that like make maybe a more strict Euro type of game or whatever that kind of gamer uh, person is. But I really enjoyed it. And I will say again, just as the caveat, some of the aliens are definitely more interesting uh, than other aliens. So like the original Cosmic Encounter, sometimes you can kind of mix all these ingredients together and have a little bit of a game that sort of doesn't meet expectations, but I've played it enough times where I've had it meet expectations. I'm like, well, that was really neat. I don't really care who won or lost, but it was just interesting and funny. And there were some interesting decisions along the way throughout the whole course of the game. So that's Cosmic Encounter Duel. So kind of moving on up the ladder here, the next one we're going to take a look at, which is one I've looked at before. I'm not going to spend a ton of time with this. This is the Funkoverse uh, game. This is the Game of Thrones expansion for it. And I reviewed the Funkoverse game towards the end of last year, really enjoyed it. And I really wanted to say that I've had a chance to play some of those original uh, sets and expansions a little bit more since then. And the game has really kind of grown more for me in terms of my estimation of it. I think it's like the perfect sort of intro to uh, miniature skirmish games for maybe, you know, kids or for like casual gamers that aren't really into playing something like a Warhammer or Frostgrave or something like that. They don't want to get all crazy like that. But if there is an IP, you know, that they get into, or at least they can appreciate or find silly that they're controlling certain characters from, then this is a really great solid game mechanically uh, that rests on top of this sort of you know, anachronistic, crazy IP mixture type of thing. So obviously this one comes with Daenerys Targaryen, uh, the Night King, Jon Snow, and Arya Stark. Those are the characters. Now, how you're supposed to pair those together thematically, that's part of the fun. And you can see, of course, Arya has her trusted needle, but there's nothing saying that you couldn't equip the Night King with this or Rose from Golden Girls if you had that expansion with that. And I wanted to show a shot of the double-sided board. These, these boards are really gorgeous. They really do a good job on these boards in general. Uh, here you can see the tree that's outside Winterfell. I forget the name of it specifically. And then on the other side, you have sort of the destruction after the Battle of Winterfell. And there's some very different scenarios that you can play on this side of the map. You can see here the tracks on both sides of the board for basically four different teams or four players. So there's new support here for some different modes uh, that haven't been in some of their earlier ones. And just continuing with some of the uh, special abilities and powers that I think are really neat, and spoiler, I think this is probably the best set that they've come up with. Uh, the Night King has their little whites 
that they can spit out little zombies and then those will kind of react in different ways when when uh, characters get knocked out and so on and then the night king has special powers to activate them they do some interesting things kind of like as a buffer or the shield daenerys has something kind of similar but a little different of course she's got drogon which is a little token more on the tokens in a second and she can uh, put that out and then he will just go in a straight line but four spaces so he's kind of easy to get around but he can kind of act as sort of a, a funnel or a buffer to kind of force the opponent in certain directions because he will attack as he kind of flies over people. Now, Jon Snow comes with a pet, which is not like an NPC uh, character token. This is an actual pet that you can activate in lieu of or at the same time as Jon Snow. And like I said, I wanted to mention the uh, token thing. So I would really like to see an expansion with this so I can get a little uh, ghost miniature. Now, ghost is the, the wolf there, the dire wolf that Jon Snow has. And I'd like a little, like, Drogon miniature or something. Or a little white miniature for the, the zombies for the Night King. That, I think that would be a really cool expansion. A little silly, probably over the top. But maybe they could also inject that with some new mechanics. And, and so you could either use them as sort of the, the minion that they are in this set... Or maybe they'll get their own special abilities in the expansion. Because just looking, again, at the uh, art for the token for Ghost, the Dire Wolf, I'm like, well, that just screams you need to have that. Now, Arya doesn't really have any special extra characters. But she's, of course, got the Needle uh, artifact that she can use. And she's got two cool abilities here. Um, so she can attack with Needle. That'll go on the cooldown track. And then she's got Arya's List, which again get, like, kind of revenge for... Um, uh, for somebody that has gotten uh, attacked on her team. And really the kind of the icing on the cake for this one is the four different scenarios that come with it. And these are all very different than any of the previous scenarios and the other expansions and things that I've played. Uh, there are uh, you know, scenarios for four teams if you want to use it that way. And you can see that there's actually a lot more uh, secondary NPC characters, basically one for each of the main characters. You've got the Unsullied for Daenerys, the Stark Soldier for Arya, the Sworn Brother for Jon, and then the White Walker, which is sort of a beefed-up white uh, for the Night King. And what I've seen with this one, it's just kind of reinforced what I've experienced with playing uh, some of the other things more and more, is the tactical quality and just the way that the whole cooldown system works. If you're not familiar with this game, I don't want to get too bogged down mechanically in it, but go check out my review of it or anybody's review of it, and you can see the special power activation, how you build your teams. All of that stuff is like all of those sort of fundamental building blocks that you see just about in every miniature game or every miniature skirmish game. You see that in here, and it's done in such an elegant, efficient way that it gets you know, getting up and running and playing so fast and so efficient and clear that it's very easy to teach and get people in and just like moving around and rolling dice and doing combat. Like it gets you right into the thick of it. And the way that the different scenarios are so objective based and so based around certain, you know, ideas, it's not just run over smash and knock everybody out on the other side. Uh, there's just there's a lot of positional tactics and movement and everything that gets baked into this and it's just a really really smart game and i know a lot of folks that i've talked to are like you know oh haha it's a funko game it has these just you know pop culture ip dismiss dismiss but to me 
in a certain sense, you can almost look at it and say, well, it's kind of a shame that there's this great mechanical game that's just glossed over by having, you know, the Golden Girls or Harry Potter or Batman or Game of Thrones or Rick and Morty. And because maybe your reaction to some of those pop culture things is not really a super positive thing or not something you want to take so seriously. But on the other hand, I think that's also a blessing on the other side because somebody that is, sees this and is like, oh, I like Game of Thrones or I like Batman, they may pick it up and then they're going to get rewarded uh, by a really solid, replayable, fun game. Like, I can't stress enough how solid, fun, and replayable it is. And I'll just give you a spoiler to the last sort of comment about this is, you know, I've been working on my top 10 miniature skirmish games, you know, small model count skirmish games. And this is 1 million percent considered uh, for being on that top 10 right now. It's right now, I'll just spoil it. I mean, it's right now, it's my number 10 because because of the ease of access, because I think of the gateway nature of it and the ability for folks to you know move on from this into something a little bit more crunchy or whatever. Um, I don't think you can uh, oversell this one too much. All right, so that's the Funkoverse strategy game, Game of Thrones expansion. Uh, the next game, the number three game on this list, is a real surprise. Had no clue about it. It's called Meeple Towers from WizKids. And this is an abstract strategy game. And they sent me a few games and they said, you know, kind of asked me if I was interested. In it. And I looked at the games and said, oh, this looks... So... And I looked at this and I'm like, oh, this looks really cool uh, physically on the table. It looks interesting. And I'm always okay with an ab abstract strategy game. And so I've had a chance to play this one now with the family with two and three player in this case. So far, we've only covered two player games. Well, I guess four player with Game of Thrones. But uh, I haven't played actually played the four player. Um, but this, you can play two, three, or four player. And you can see the first thing I do not like about this game is the name. I do not like the game Meeple Towers, but that's a very superficial thing. So I'm just going to move on from that. I really don't like that name. But what you're going to be doing is building up towers or a city on this grid. Now, the grid that you see here is set up for a three or four player game, but there's no reason you couldn't play a two player game on it. I would not recommend it, actually. Uh, but there are multiple boards that you can kind of hook up together like this. And on some of the boards, you can flip them over and then it will sort of shrink the size of this grid uh, in that case. And that's when you would use it for a two player game. Or you could even use the smaller grid with a three or four player game if you wanted a really tight but tall uh, set of towers. Now, each player gets their own identical little deck of cards in their player color. And on your turn, what you're going to be doing is either playing a card and doing one of the two actions depicted on it. So you can see here, I'll build two supports uh, towers, or I'll put out two workers, one on a coffee area and one on a house area. Or if I played this card here, I'd put two workers on housing areas and then one worker on the coffee shop area. I'd do either of those two actions. And finally, you might actually build some structures like you can see here in the bottom portion of this card. So you're either playing a card and doing one of the two actions on it, or you're, for your whole turn, picking up all the cards that you've played and then kind of restocking your hand. So when you go to build like a certain type of truck structure or put out a worker on a certain type of spot, you know, you might be kind of out of luck because if you've played a card earlier, maybe you should have held back for a more opportune time to play it later because while it's sitting in your discard pile, obviously you can't play it. So there's a really interesting mechanic around the table when somebody scoops there's a real temptation for everybody to kind of scoop, be kind of, to kind of be ready and be flexible for whatever you know the other players might do and be able to react to that. So that's a lot like a game like Concordia or Flotilla or some other games like that. Um, that you know, is it really? This is a really cool mechanic that I've seen in games. And it's really executed well here. So when you put out supports, you'll put out a support in your color. 
And sometimes, you know, obviously a card will allow you to put out two supports. Now you can stack supports up to two high before covering it with a structure, uh, but no more than that. And you can't put two of your same color supports right on top of each other on the same turn. Although you could come back to an open support and cover it on the next turn. Here we see black covering up white as well as putting out a black worker in a housing area. And here we can see yellow, they put out two workers. And then finally, somebody might play a card to build a structure. Now there's kind of three different groups of structures. There's a group of small structures, one and two square sizes, then there's some kind of medium sizes, and then there's some bigger structures. And so when you play those, you'll look and see here that there are little structure tokens at the either end. So you have to have supports going right underneath there. And then, you know, that's that that will make it a legal placement. You can have supports going under the other parts as well, but you have to have, you know, equal height supports going under there. And then what's going to happen is you can see you might cover up some workers on a specific spot. Those workers will go back to that player and then they'll get a token that matches. So you might get a housing token or a briefcase token or uh, the coffee token and then that will be a little hidden score value that they'll keep and then they'll add that to their score at the end of the game now the person that placed the actual structure is going to get whatever the points depicted in the square are in this case eight points and then each colored support underneath it is going to get you can see here three points for each so in this case white will get three six nine points and yellow would get three points so if yellow had played it they would get eight plus three that would be eleven and then the white would clean up after that and get nine points and then yellow will get some extra points for covering one of their workers. And so this is a game that's, you basically just try to get in each other's way. You try to cover each other's supports, put workers where you think, uh, you know, people might be covering over with the different, uh, you know, structures that you build up and really watching the card play of it. So the card play is a very key part of the game. It is definitely a good, solid, abstract strategy game. Positioning sort of feels like a Santorini or something like that, where you kind of have that three-dimensional quality where you're building up, trying to you know jockey for position. And then some of those uh, sort of spaces, like the houses and the briefcases and the coffee shop place, those will change. So as you go higher is when you get access to some of the briefcases and those special tokens are worth a little bit more. So it's definitely a strategy to be really proactive about playing workers, not worry too much about building the supports and trying to score that way. So there's a lot of paths to victory there, uh, but you're also watching the game timer. And this is, the game can kind of sneak up on you. And I would say a game, once you get the hang of it and play it, it's probably about a 30 minute game, even with a fourth player. Now, I haven't played it with 4th player, I've only played it 2 and 3. But once somebody runs out of their supports, or once you deplete one of the tokens, the, you know, the houses and the coffee shops, or once one of the groups of structures, either the small, medium, or large groups are depleted, you'll finish out the rounds, everybody gets equal number of turns, and then you'll go and score. So you get the scoring you know, tokens that I showed you, and then also any workers that are left out, they're gonna score based on the level that they're out. So just throwing workers on like level three or four, if you get that high, is gonna give you some points to be at the end. So it's kind of a rush to victory there. So, but you gotta keep an eye on what those end game conditions are because you could see that you could be trying to build like this big old, you know, a three by three structure, but there's not enough time and people, it's, it, it can be easy to sort of interrupt and build, uh, interrupt the building of those by blocking or throwing up supports in the way. So you gotta keep an eye on that, uh, that end game that's approaching. But this is a really, really, really fun game. Now I will say this about player count. 
Two-player, I was kind of expecting to like it more, but I actually like it more at the three-player count, and I think I'd even... Three might be perfect, because I haven't played it four, but I feel like it might be a little chaotic with four, because the board state's going to change a whole bunch. But three was just seemed to be right in that sweet spot, uh, because there was more piggybacking and stuff that you could do off of the other players. So with the two players, a little bit back and forth. Like, I put a worker here, you do that. So you can play cat and mouse. So, you can, so basically, you're trying not to set somebody up to build a structure. I mean, that's not the sum total of all the strategy in the game, but that's a big part of it. So just like, well, I'll do this because if I put a support there, then you're just going to lay down this big structure. And, well, you, you can count up pretty quickly. They're going to score more points than you. But with the three-player game, there's a little bit you can sort of pivot and play around with kind of being that odd man out. And that was a really, really interesting uh, part of the game. Now, I should say with four-player, there also is a variant there to play as teams. Again, I haven't tried that either. So that might be an interesting thing. Now, with two players, it was fine. But with again, with three players, is really where it excelled. And I think it was fantastic. I played with my family, and we had a ton of fun with it. So really, this kind of come out of nowhere. Uh, Meeple Towers, definitely take a look at it. All right, so the fourth game. Again, another surprise. And in a way, but when I saw this and I saw who the designer was, I was like, oh, this is probably good. <laughs> and then I was I was surprised how good it actually is. So anyway, this is Super Skill Pinball 4K, which I'm just going to call Super Skill Pinball from now on. <laughs> so this is a roll and write pinball game from designer Jeff Engelstein. And it's a, the first of all, before we look at any pictures or anything, the production quality is out of this world. It is amazing. And it really makes the game feel like a pinball game. And I also want to preface this by saying, I really honestly am not the biggest fan of the Roland Rights. I've played a few that I like. But if you look here, I've not really dedicated much time to a roll and write video for a game. You know, it hasn't got like the full-blown coverage kind of thing. I've played some that I've had fun, like they're fun. But it's just, it's just not what I'm personally looking for in a game to kind of play, you know, whatever Yahtzee kind of thing. I mean, obviously, there's way more to it than that. But this one, to me, let's get into it. But it does something a lot more than uh, than the rolling rights that I've played. So first of all, they call it Super Skill Pinball 4K because there's four different maps, and it plays up to four players. It plays one to four players. And one thing I wanted to point out before we get too much into the mechanics is they have this little two-page quick start guide, and this will get you into playing the first sort of carnival clown level. And it's just one page, two page, and then you jump right in and you can play right from the beginning. Now there's extra rules and clarifications in the rule book, which is sort of thick, but it's, it's really well laid out and easy to digest. But I really like that they included this quick start guide because it just makes made jumping into the game so quick and so fun. It was like, oh, we're in, we're playing, we're having fun. It was great. Now here are the four different levels. You can see in the upper left, there's like a carnival clown thing. Upper right, which is on the back side of the first one, is kind of a futuristic sci-fi thing. Lower left is a fantasy thing. And then on the back of that one, there's like a 1970s, you know, Saturday Night Fever type of looking thing. So there's these four levels. And these are augmented by the back glass. So each player will take the level and then the back glass, which is where you're going to spend a lot of time keeping score and some other things. So here's this kind of a close-up shot of it. Uh, you can see there's lots of, like, 
it looks cluttered, it looks kind of messy, but it becomes very, very intuitive and easy to digest and figure out where things are supposed to go. Uh, when I first opened it, I was like, oh, this looks like kind of a pain, it's messy, but it's really intuitive how it works. Now, some of the levels, which I'll show you in a second, will have like a little mini game. So if you play those really cool pinball ma machines where you're just more than doing the flippers, you'll like get it into a special spot and like trigger this combo and then you'll like have like another thing going on on the top of the back glass and stuff. So this has got all that kind of stuff in it and even goes kind of beyond, but let's get into more of this. So each player gets two of these little like pinball looking tokens, which look really cool. Now you usually just use one, but sometimes you'll activate multi-ball or you have something going on in the back glass. So you're actually move, moving two around and the turns are so dead simple. So one player, it doesn't matter, will roll two dice and then each player individually, simultaneously at the same time, chooses one of those numbers and they'll have to move that ball to a spot that kind of corresponds to that number. So here we've got one and a five, and we can look here in the top. So the first spot that's available to you here out of that launch starting spot is this little Ferris wheel contraption at the top. And you can see you can go in any of the spots that have a one or a five. So this box on the left has a one and a two, so you could use that one, or you could go to the one over on the right that has a five and a six. So in the case, we'll just choose a one here for argument's sake, we'll choose that, and then we'll just mark off that box with the little felt tip pins that come with it. And then you mark it down. And then you can't use that until you've cleared that. So you're kind of losing your options slowly as uh, the ball kind of bounces around and descends down the pinball machine. And so from there, you're then gonna work your way down the glass and then into kind of the next section. So here we'll get into some bumpers. You'll roll two dice again, players will choose, and they'll pick one of the spots and then use it. And you can see in this case, there's arrows here, so it allows you to go down the purple arrows, and you can move the ball around from bumper to bumper if the next bumper has a number that you haven't crossed out with, and then you just keep going, and you kind of progress down the glass until you hit these flippers, and then so if you get down to the bottom and you say, I choose a three, you can cross out the three above the red flipper, and then you can send it up back up to the top of the glass. So as the ball is kind of bouncing around, you're losing options, losing options, and which options you choose is really neat because yeah, it's a roll and write game, but then if I use the five now, cause I'm trying to get this score thing and like get closer to like activating this combo, then I might want to actually like let that go and then let the ball drop. Because if you get, as the ball drops, if you get to a spot where you can't use it, it's just going to keep dropping. So I might say instead choose the one in a different case, there's no one in that current level, so it'll keep dropping, and then it'll activate a one down here. So yeah, it's a little bit close to getting to the flippers, which is scary because obviously that's where you can lose the ball and lose your turn. But there's some real kind of interesting decisions to make, and it's a very kind of push your luck kind of thing where it's like, oh, I'm so close to getting that combo thing figured out, which will activate the multi-ball, and this will do this. But it, there's a real interesting idea, and the, the fact that you are choosing that die and rolling that die, you're really trying to think out what my probabilities are. So like, oh, so if I get, if I get this and I can clear that, because sometimes when you get all of the dice, you'll, you'll clear them all out and then I'm like, oh, I can sit there and then once that ball gets in there, it's just gonna live in there and just gonna get points, 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 points. And so on. so that decision making, I've not really seen a roll and write do that where you're like, you're really kind of planning so, so visually and physically out from where your current turn is at. It's very hard to, for me to explain this, but it, it, that is a neat thing to do with this because then you can trigger all these things that'll happen. So that's a really hard thing to explain, but the cool thing is that really makes it feel 
uh, like pinball <laughs> because it's one of those things where you kind of get going and you click, click, click. And then as the, you sort of play along, it's just that crushing weight of, you know, when I play pinball, it's like bull crap that, you know, like, oh, the ball went right through the middle because you didn't roll that die, it dropped down too far, dropped right through the center. You didn't have anything to roll, you know, to pick because you just randomly got that. So that's going to happen. Uh, but then when you get the ball up and then you just, you roll and you roll, it's almost like playing craps in a way because it keeps bouncing back and forth. You get, oh, the multiplier's going up, 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 up. And so that is one thing that I want to take away with this is that, now I played the solo as well with the two and three players. Now, when I first played a solo, I was like, oh, this isn't going to be any fun with other players because everybody's kind of doing their own thing. You kind of roll the dice, you mark your stuff. Oh, what'd you do? It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me. You go back and forth. But then what happens is each uh, game is three rounds. So if I go out, if my ball goes through, the, goes through the flipper and I don't have anything to flip it out or you know trigger any bonuses with at the bottom, I just keep playing. I go into my next round. And then you might still be on the first round because you're doing really, really well. So even though I get eliminated from the round, I'm still playing. We're still playing off the same two dice choice. And when you go into the next round, you, you wipe off some of the dashed spaces. So you kind of reset your flippers and all that stuff. And then you get to the end, and invariably there's going to be somebody that's left over in that third and final round. But what happens actually is everybody looks and sees them, and they're first of all jealous because they're, they're, everything's just going their way. And then it becomes like an excitement thing where you're at the pinball arcade, and everybody's kind of shouting either for you to fail <laughs> because they want to see you fail, you know, they want to be the high score, or they're getting excited for you because there's, you know, you're about to pull off this huge combo, get like a hundred points or whatever in, you know, one fell swoop. So that sort of environmental atmosphere that's created by the game is just really invigorating and addictive. And it's just very, very cool that the game can sort of inspire that. So I just wanted to kind of leave with that. So I wanted to show one other thing because this is sort of a wish that I have. This is the sort of the medieval fantasy uh, pinball machine. And it has this really cool thing where you have like two things that I really like. There's the horde thing, which you can kind of see at the bottom here with you sort of build up this big combo. And then once you smack the dragon, you'll score all those points. And then the other thing it has is spells. So as you kind of level up and things, you get spells to kind of manipulate the dice. And this is such a cool thing because it's so much like out the bounds of any pinball game that I've ever played. A lot of the other ones, they feel like pinball games that I've played where some of the more complex, interesting ones, you know, where you can, you can trigger the spinners and levers and get the other mini game that you're playing off to the side of the board and that kind of stuff. Um, and some of them like will make you like choose, to, you have two dice, but you have to use them both, but in different ways. So that makes the decision-making a little bit more interesting there. But this one is crazy because you get like a spell that is like just one of your traditional like dice manipulation tropes. Like you can flip the die, add one to the die, reduce one from the die, or do some other thing on the board. And then you get these spells and then you activate them, and I'm like, what pinball game is this? Because I would love to play a pinball game where you could play, and then you had, like, whenever you got a new spell, there'd be, like, another button or something that you could do that. And then somehow, I don't know, is there a pinball game like that that exists? Probably not. <laughs> but I was like, this is my favorite one because it's so unrealistic that you're playing, and then you get a spell. And it's like, it's almost like a movie pinball game where there's like magic involved. Just a really fun thing. So, yeah, so I definitely uh, recommend this, obviously. It's super fun. 
I mean, there's probably a little bit of a caveat for folks that it is kind of multiplayer solitaire. But like I said, it elicits that environment of, you know, rooting for or against somebody at the end of the game. And it's only going to go on a couple of minutes. And then it's cool because you can like roll the dice and then the other person can write. So everybody sees what you roll and then there's like, you know, cheering or booing at that moment. And then they write, you know, like you can just see visually too, as you sort of rate or cover up stuff with your pen, the combo sort of build up. It keeps building up. So really, really fun game. Really cool. I definitely recommend this just about to everybody. So anyway, last game here is from Plant Hat Games. And this is uh, Forgotten Waters. Now, this is a new Crossroads game, which I think there's been two before. There's Dead of Winter, and then there was the one before this, which I'm forgetting the name of. And this one is sort of a pirate-themed Crossroads game. But it's really... uh, So, just cut right to the chase. I think this is sort of like the pinnacle of kind of what they've been cooking up in the Plat Hat Games lab since Dead of Winter first came out. You know, we're talking about with the Comanauts game, uh, the Stuffed Panda game, Stuffed Fables game, uh, the last uh, Crossroads game, and now this one. Because this one really kind of takes it to uh, the next level. Uh, so what this is, is it's a very much a story-driven game. If I had to kind of sum it up for you in a very glib, sort of succinct way, I would say it's basically Tales of the Arabian Nights, but it makes sense. And it has just a lot more going on and a lot more bling in a way, and a lot more bang for your buck in terms of the storytelling. So it's obviously a pirate game. You go on one of, I believe, six scenarios, and each you can choose from like 24 or something different pirates that have their own kind of backstory, which you you can sort of help generate, but you don't have to spend a ton of time sort of working on your character. The game does really a lot for you. So it really kind of sniffs at and sort of slightly caresses the RPG world here, um, but in a really, 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 really smart way. And so this is a very fantastical pirate game. It's not uh, realistic. There's magic and stuff like that and talking mermen and all that kind of thing. And it's very easy. I showed you this one. So I played it now uh, solo a couple times as well as actually online, uh, just via the internet with uh, Skype meetups and stuff. And so there is files that you can print out and play along with somebody that has uh, their copy of the game. So this is one that I printed out to play along with a buddy of mine down south. And in, you can just see here, you have this little thing to mark it up. Now it does come with little pads and things like that to, uh, that you can photocopy or download if you wish to uh, keep track of your ship log as well as your individual pirates and things. You're gonna have this giant ship book with these uh, tracks that you can put around it. And you're also gonna have this little map with little hex tokens and things. And you're gonna be moving your pirate ship around uh, that map. And there'll be different ways to set up the scenarios and so on. They've got little numbers on them. And so when you move to certain places, you're gonna read entries for those numbers. There's tiles that you'll draw randomly as well. So as you explore, you might see like, rough seas or foggy seas or run into other ships and so on. But a lot of times you'd be trying to get to a destination with a special uh, numbered entry uh, like so that might be surrounded by misty fog or surrounded by mountains. You've got to figure out a way to get through them. And then when you get to these locations, you'll turn to a spot in a book as well, which is kind of like generic spots. Like you can see here is open sea or cursed waters or a volcanic village, or there might be other encounters and things. 
and you'll have like nice little tokens and treasure and you get reroll tokens and misfortune tokens and all kinds of stuff as you kind of uh, move through it. Now, a lot of this is driven by an app and the app you're always going to have and use, even as you're playing face to face and you're going to go pick the scenario and then it's going to kind of drive you through. And you can see here, there's a picture of the app here. You can either read this out loud or there's actually audio um, that's very well uh, produced and narrated and done. And there's, they've even built a, what's called a remote app, which is how I played it, where uh, somebody creates the game remotely and sends everybody a link and you kind of move in. So you don't actually have to deal with those tracks anymore. You still need the book and the map. So one player needs the book and the map, or each player can have uh, you know one of each. So that's how I've been playing. I was controlling the map, and the other player, one of the other players, was controlling the the book. And so you basically just kind of move around and then read stories. But then it does this really interesting thing where you'll move to a spot. This is, I'm going to try to get to where I can explain the, just the, the amazing part of this, this design in this game. Is you'll move into, like I said, like an open ocean or you know rough seas or whatever. So anytime you're in a rough sea spot, you're going to probably go to that same page in the book. Because those actions are usually going to be the same. So you've got to like man the sails if you're in the rough seas. Or if you're in port, you can go to the market or you can go to the tavern and that kind of stuff. But the app itself, it almost acts as like a very, 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 very smart deck of cards. Where like it goes, oh, I know what scenario you're playing. I know where you're at. I've been keeping track of the threat. All this stuff. Very seamlessly. There's not, you know, a lot of times these app games, there's a lot of bookkeeping and things like that that you have to do that sort of gets in the way. But this does a lot of tracking for you. So it's able to like smartly interpret things and generate crossroads events and things like that for you um, in a way that makes the storytelling so seamless. And then it has this whole voiceover acting thing, which is really cool because that just sucks you right into it as well. But then when you're then physically looking at the book and looking at the actions, it tells you you basically start a timer and it says, don't read all the results of the actions because, I mean, you'll get to know them. So you, that's one of the interesting things about it is if, if you play like they tell you, like, just pick the action. And it's kind of like a little mini worker placement thing. It's like, just well, I'm going to man the sails because I think that's important because it's windy. Or I'm going to reload the cannons or I'm going to do that. And then you go and you go, oh, okay, I started to roll a die and I add this modifier and increase my skill here and do that. So, but if you think about it, it really forces you to think about it thematically first without thinking about it mechanically. And then as you play more, you'll get to know how that works. You're like, oh, if I go here and I roll this, or if I pick this option, we can get some supplies. I'm going to do that. So the, the picking becomes a little bit quicker because some people are just going to read anyway. But um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. It's like, how do you do like a gut check? Like, well, I think we, we should do this because this sounds good. And it may not work out as great as I thought it was, but it's, it's going to do what I expect it to do when you go and take those worker placement actions. And then as you move through the scenario, um, you know, a lot of those other things that you sort of are tracking will become very important. Because the thing is, you can actually lose the game. Like if your ship sinks or if like the morale of the crew gets too low and that kind of thing. Or there might be certain conditions by the scenario itself that, that make you, you lose. It's funny because the story elements and the, and the game mechanical elements with those different tracks are so separate but they inform the story so smartly because I've played a game where we've lost and then played a game where we, I've completed the whole first scenario. And the way that the game unfolds is so interesting because you're like, well, we lost the one time, but then the second time it was like, 
Well, let's let's focus a little bit more on supplies this time. And that was really able to get us a little bit uh, further along. And we were a much smarter crew of pirates at that point. So that kind of mechanical sort of knowledge and skill was informing the story. And, you know, it just sort of layered on top of that. It, everything is really just precisely done thing where each mechanic is not overwhelming in a way because there's a lot going on. Like you track supplies, morale, uh, threat, you know, and the app is tracking where you are in the story and where the tokens are and where you've been and, you know, certain threat events might come. So all this stuff is kind of happening, but it's so effortless to play because you just kind of follow the app and the app says, okay, re- we're going to read this entry. It's going to read for you. And then it'll say, you know what, do a check, done, go. And it'll say, turn to page 46. You know, it gives this big old nice picture of wherever you're at. So you're able to immediately, you know, sink yourself right in and immerse in that world. And then it's like, go, you have 40 seconds, choose actions. And everybody's just like, so you have 40 seconds, you can look a little bit, but you know, it, it's timed and it should be. Because you don't want to read all this. That would take you like three minutes to read all the thing out loud. And it's super boring and be like, oh, if we rolled a six here, we'd get that. If we rolled higher than a 12, we'll get that. So we should do that and math that out. You know what? This game is not for anybody that wants to play that way. It's like, I'm going to repair the sails. I'm going to attack the shark. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell the captain to uh, scout this, the land. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. So when you're reacting and, and making decisions, it just makes you feel so immersed in everything. And then you kind of, you know, uh, fall through with it. And then you get all these other mechanical things on top of it. Like you get treasures and, uh, you know, tokens and things to like re-roll or misfortune tokens or things that add to your ability and all that stuff. So that stuff just makes it work really well. So the last point I want to leave with, leave you with of this is I mentioned there's like 24 different pirates. So what you do is you fill out this like weird little backstory game. I'm going to let you discover that because I don't even want to try to explain it. It's very, it's like a Mad Libs thing, but it's just so cool because then you have your own little like selfish kind of goal, but there's no traitor kind of aspect. It's just like, this is your goal. So it's going to actually, sometimes you're going to be like, well, if we complete this mission, my victory condition is either going to be a bad kind of a middling one or a great victory condition. So sometimes I might take something, a worker placement thing that I know or an action or a decision that I know is going to kind of help me on my own little personal quest. And so you, you, there's a little bit of a risk because like I said, everybody can lose and there's not like there's one winner. Some people might win better or, or not as good, but you're still going to win. But it's just, it's a story thing. Like if you're going to play it to where like, well, I want it better than you, you know, there's a little bit of luck involved there, but that makes for an interesting kind of thing because you're like, well, I think we're doing good. we got enough supplies. I can spend this one supply and then that will help me bump up this little track that you have on your character sheet to unlock like extra sort of personal victory goals. And a lot of those goals for your, your personal character is going to help generally. Like you might get supplies back or something or you might get an extra treasure card personally. So there's all these kind of things. So just all of those kind of things kind of leaving off where we started this video, those layers of things on top of that simple core just really invests in the narrative. And it's cool to watch other people get their little personal things right and have a little bit of a discussion, you know, is Billy being selfish about that? But it's also a pirate game and pirates are notoriously selfish. (laughs) So the way that the game unfolds, this is like the perfect system for a pirate theme in a lot of ways. 
anyway, so I I know I can't. It's so tricky because this sometimes when the game is is more special than than you know than others, <laughs> it's it's harder to talk about because it's such a visceral experience, and I feel like like you had to be there almost it's it's almost that kind of vibe where all of these sort of elements sort of coagulate and then they they smash together and then they make this cool narrative event and this moment and this game just is it's just full of them even like the most mundane things like when you go to a tavern or something and then you get in a bar fight or something it's just like that's just another little narrative you know check mark in this long little journey of this scenario that you're trying to go through so it just has all of that. It's just a, a good bubbling mixture of of all this stuff. And it's very crunchy and interesting mechanically. Like, it feels so smart to me, the way it does things. Like, a very, very smart um, RPG. You know, some of the, it feels like an indie RPG. This has some really finely crafted me- mechanics. and But just a cool production, you know, with the whole app thing. And, you know, they, they busted out that remote app for this whole COVID thing. So everybody can just play it, you know, online and stuff. And just when you open the book and there's like a giant Megalodon or there's, um, you know, there's like a, you're, you're both being invaded by mermen or whatever. You're in this dark, dingy cave or you're at sea and the, your boat's being tossed around. Like it just hits all those little touch points of imagination and the mechanics never get in the way of it. The, the only thing they do is just enhance and add to it. So anyway, I can't say enough about that, that Forgotten Waters. All right, so this is a little something different, but I really have enjoyed top to bottom all five of these games this summer uh, over the last month or so. And I wanted to catch up. I didn't want to, you know, some of these I've had longer than others. And I was like, I don't want to do the, do one this week and one the next week and one the next week. And I was like, let me just give you kind of my top five games of the summer. And uh, hopefully one of these strikes you. And uh, anyway, take care of yourselves. I'll see you guys in the next video.